Hello, everyone, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 65, How AI is Revolutionizing MedTech, Current and Future Applications. My name is Stephen Bernacki. I'm Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to start today with some quick information about RQM Plus uh, and introduce some of today's panelists, or all of today's panelists, and then I'll hand it over to our moderator who will get the conversation started. So RQM Plus is the leading MedTech service provider with the world's largest global team of regulatory and quality experts. Building upon 40 years of regulatory expertise, we also provide comprehensive clinical trial, lab, and reimbursement services, reducing risk and supporting market access throughout the entire product lifecycle for medical devices, digital therapeutics, and diagnostics. And you've joined today our interactive show, RQM Plus Live. It gives you access to seasoned industry leaders and experts who answer your questions about industry topics and challenges. So if you have any questions today, uh, we certainly encourage you to ask them, and you can do that by typing them into the webinar interview. Uh, without further delay, here are some brief introductions, and we're going to start with our gracious guests. So first up is Francesco Palma, co-founder and VP of products at Giotto.ai. Francesco leads the team in charge of discovering and designing products of the Giotto.ai suite and has extensive experience productizing AI technologies. Francesco is also an applied mathematician and, just like the next panelist, has won numerous machine learning competitions organized by industry. Uh, speaking of that next panelist, next up is Wallace and Oliviera, co-founder and VP of Machine Learning at Geodo.ai. Wallace leads the team responsible for research and development of AI solutions and has extensive experience in modeling business use cases using raw AI algorithms and transforming them into business-ready solutions, all designed for seamless collaboration between humans and AI. Third, and from RQM Plus, is Chief Digital and Technology Officer Alaric Jackson. Alaric's role at RQM Plus is to reinforce the alignment of our company goals and strategy to ensure customer expectations are exceeded, all while implementing best-in-class technology. Previous to RQM Plus, Alaric served as GSK's Vice President and Head of Technology for Global Medical, Regulatory, Quality, and Safety. Uh, next up, we have Amy Smirthwaite, Senior Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation at RQM Plus. Amy leads the RQM Plus Intelligence and Innovation team and was previously head previously the Global Head of Clinical Compliance at BSI. While at BSI, Amy developed their clinical compliance team and led clinical aspects of BSI's successful MDR designation. Uh, she's also contributed to numerous clinical and regulatory guidance documents and training. And finally, our moderator today is Celeste Maxim, Head of Product at RQM Plus. Celeste's current role at RQM Plus is focusing on developing technology solutions to enhance our services. So with all of that said, Celeste, you are free to get the conversation going. Awesome. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate that. And thank you, everyone, for joining today. We're really looking forward to this great conversation. Uh, to get started, I think it would be helpful to really just frame our conversation with some definitions for artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, so, Wallison, would you mind sharing with us kind of how what these terms mean and how they differ from regular automation? Hello, everybody. Nice to meet you, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm actually quite happy to be here, so thank you for the invitation. So, indeed, uh, I think it's a, it's a relevant question because we hear those words everywhere and uh, in all contexts. So I think it's maybe good to provide a definition of what they mean. And I will start with the just simply the concept of AI. I think, first of all, artificial intelligence, it's it's a difficult one to give a precise definition because intelligence itself, I think it's very hard to define. But I would give a try and propose a definition which is kind of is kind of using technologies, whatever technology, robots, 
computers and mathematical models anything to actually mimic some some process of human of human cognitive behavior and uh, this might involve different technologies for instance you might think about uh, expert systems where you just encode rule-based i would say uh, uh, knowledge or you can have machines that try to actually learn and and uh, and uh, adapt uh, to the tasks that you're trying to to replicate so that's artificial intelligence so it's a concept it's a very genetic concept of mimicking ai of mimicking human intelligence now we have machine learning which is uh, to me a, a subset of artificial intelligence where we we try to replicate this human uh, cognitive behavior by providing examples to the machine and uh, and let it learn by itself actually how to replicate those um this task for instance you 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 imagine you you want to learn like how to drive a car then you would provide many 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 examples of how you know human drives a car and then you have the machine learn from that experience and and understand how it should behave in the context of driving a car that's machine learning so a subset of ai and uh, and finally i think we can also add this the deep learning which is a subset of machine learning which is the set of algorithms which uh, use uh, i would say some reasoning based on how brain works which is like having this set of neurons stacked next to each other and tries to learn essentially from examples that you provided and now how this differ to automation um i would say that the you know all those concepts like ai machine learning and deep learning they they aim at replicating a human task and so you might end up being able to automatize some some procedures with all those with all those with artificial intelligence but i would say the main difference compared to regular uh, i would say autom automatization is that regular automatization is deterministic so it's a very precise set of rules which is has to be respected in order to obtain the desired behavior whereas with ai you know you have this notion of the ai can adapt and adjust to different contexts and different scenarios which i think is something uh, quite different to regular automation absolutely thank you um so given that context let's dive into the use of ai and ml in med tech um, so maybe, Alaric, could you start with giving examples of how this technology is being used more broadly in life sciences today? Yeah, thanks, Celeste, and hey, everyone. So, yeah, I mean, AIML, there's su such a buzz about it already, right? But fundamentally, it's really quite well deployed across life sciences. So all the way from researching molecules to the commercialization of molecules and devices. So if I think about research in drug development, specifically, AI is, and ML is used to look at disease patterns and look at what drugs could be targeted against the patterns of those diseases, potentially also overlaying genetic data to work out if certain populations would be more susceptible and whether there would be more efficacy of the treatment. So that's kind of in the drug development space. As you then move forward down, um, it's used extensively um, or can be used extensively for identifying in the clinical trials process identifying where trials should be run, where there is a large number of patients that have the disease or um, and that could be subject to clinical trials. Then as you go further down the line, so actually when you might have a, a drug on market, um, it can be used to support the sales team. So um, 
next best action um, specifically. So um, sales reps using um, CRM software and the CRM software has AIML embedded, telling them what the next task they should undertake with the customer on that journey. And I think interestingly and more exciting, well, medically more interestingly is that in a medical next best action as well, where medical science liaisons potentially are able to leverage that to help them um, with HCPs. So, I mean, it's fairly um, used already, Celeste, in a lot of places and actually in some clinics as well. Very helpful, yeah. Amy, do you have any insight from a med tech perspective? Yeah, I think it's actually, it's quite similar in a way. Obviously it's different um, intervention technology, but I've seen things along the lines of using it to improve diagnosis. So looking at how humans, for example, look at radiographs to make diagnoses and then trying to use that to teach machines. And they have incredible accuracy from the, the trials I've seen so far on that, or things like analyzing different surgical techniques and seeing, you know, where there are patterns emerging or, or things that could be uh, transferable from one technique to another. So yeah, I think when when Alaric was speaking, I was kind of nodding my head thinking, yeah, that's quite analogous to the med tech space as well. Very helpful. And what about from the industry perspective in general, Francesco? Well, definitely maybe one additional use case that, uh, that I can add. So AI is being used over the past, especially over the past years, uh, to streamline literature reviews and facilitate the collection of uh, structured data. And this can be helpful in the context of device compliance, uh, but also product development or, or market research. So in this case, uh, the type of technology we are using is it's called natural language processing, and the models can be used to identifying uh, uh, to identify relevant literature faster and to extract objective data from scientific papers so that the experts uh, don't have to focus on such uh, low level and repetitive tasks and can rather focus on more qualitative activities like for instance defining a better uh, and wider uh, uh, and more target, targeted research question. Very helpful. So I think something, uh, switch gears a little bit here, something we probably all encounter quite frequently maybe is how does the transparency and explainability of AI affect its adoption? Um, so, in other words, like from, you know, one viewpoint, like how can we trust AI, right? Um, Alaric, like, do you have any perspectives of what we can learn from pharma on this? I mean, I, th I think a key component of the use of AI ML is the validation of the algorithms and the explainability of the algorithms. I, I think having a black box where you put an input in and you get an output out without being able to explain it just isn't suitable for our industry and for life sciences. So what I've seen at other organizations and across the industry is kind of very clear validation um, and clear explainability of why the AI ML makes the decision it does. So that if, a, if it's looked at, whether it be from a regulator or an HCP, they understand the decision tree that was taken and that can then be used to improve um, the algorithm moving forward. But I, I think that validation is absolutely critical um, to, to build that trust in, in AI ML. And honestly, I mean, it, it's something that's needed for any technology solution, really. I think AMIL just um, because of the visibility has more scrutiny at the moment. Absolutely. And uh, Wallison or Francesco, do you encounter this as well? Yes. So definitely. You know, as uh, Alaric was saying, I think the explainability is really, I would say, a big challenge today. I would say that it's really slowing down the adoption. I think in many use cases, actually, even those which I have encountered, 
you know, there is this importance of providing some, I would say, reasoning reasoning for why the AI is deciding or proposing a given solution. Like we you can imagine, like let's say the use case that Amy was saying about the diagnostic. If an AI is kind of uh, predicting that the given uh, patient has cancer, <laughs> we want to make sure that you know we can understand, we can verify that, and that this is mm -hmm. correct. And so we really need to be able to explain easily, and this easily is really not straightforward mm -hmm. to the human, like how he can make the same conclusions as the AI did. And it's not it's not easy because, as Eric is saying, those models they are considered black box and they are called as such because usually we're talking about models which can have like thousands and millions and billions of parameters. Like if you think about those uh, large language models like ChatGPT, which I think we're all aware of, it's, we're talking about like hundreds of billions of, 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 of parameters. So really understanding like what's behind that, it's really not easy. And I think, you know, we have to invest, I would say, uh, I would say it's a worldwide commitment into like how do we build explainable AI. I think like many companies have been investing how do we build performant AI, and I think we're kind of reached quite some some good advancement in there because we can see like how powerful they are. But I think we're a bit behind on like how do we make them explainable and how do we make them readable by by uh, by a human. Very good. Uh, so we have some questions from the audience. So just uh, to let everyone know, please do ask us questions. This is live show. Um, and we have some coming in already. I'd like to ask like in healthcare setting, uh, how are regulators responding to this increased adoption of AI ML? So Amy, maybe do you want to start? Yeah, well, obviously now you're seeing within the EU entire um, notified bodies that are going to be dedicated to AI and it's not just for medical devices it's across you know there's I think three different regulations in the EU covering covering AI and you see the similar in, in the FDA that they're putting out additional guidance on this so I think it's still very new they're still learning and adapting and as the risks become apparent we'll see those those guidances and, and regulations tightening up um, but yeah, I think it's maybe a bit early to say, but certainly a lot of interest in the fact that they're setting up dedicated facilities specifically for this regulation, I think is very interesting. Absolutely. Thank you for your insight on that. Um, another audience question, maybe a bit more technical, Francesco, um, maybe you start us off is, if AI is based on pattern recognition, is it possible that when a large amount of misinformation is fed into the algorithm that it causes the AI to make a poor decision? And then how do you work to prevent this? Absolutely. So this is a very relevant question. And actually, one of the one of the real world challenges uh, that any organization is facing today for uh, the adoption of artificial intelligence, so not only medtech, not only life science, but also we have seen that in all the other in, in many other industry sectors, is the lack of uh, uh, quality data. So it's very important for us to understand, for everybody to understand that and keep in mind that these models are learning on data. So they do require very high quality data and, and usually a good amount to be uh, trained, so to learn the patterns that are useful for that specific application and to be validated. So it, definitely, I think this is one of the challenges that of, of every organization to, to actually make sure that the data that we are using for, for, for the AI models is uh, of, of good quality. Very good. Anything to add, Wallison? Helpful. 
Well, I think we know. I totally agree on what Francesco is saying, and um, and uh, you know, I think we can also link this back to the explainability. Is that if we, if we manage to solve this very big challenge of explainability, you know, we'll be able to at least provide a support for a human that will then reuse these predictions to actually, okay, say, okay, you know, the prediction is actually wrong, and uh, I should not trust it, which I think we're not there today, and uh, and yeah, definitely the quality of the data is is crucial. And um, I think that's for any use case that uh, where we use machine learning, we ha we need to have good quality data. Absolutely. Okay. Well, while we're on the topic of manufacturer adoption, another question that we often get is, um, what could manufacturers do to leverage AI ML in their workflows? Uh, so, like for example, where do manufacturers currently have large pools of data that might lend itself to using AI ML to improve? Um, whether it's the workflows of internal operations or even compliance itself. Francesco, do you want to start? Yeah, so one example that I already mentioned before uh, is about the possibility to streamline literature reviews because that's where you actually have maybe uh, an internal process that is quite structured and you uh, and, and, and people, companies have, have already collected many uh, a lot of data uh, using the structured process. But more in general, what, what we always advise to do um, because every application is different, maybe every organization is different, is to uh, try to uh, uh, try to frame the problem, try to understand what is the problem on which we would like to get some artificial intelligence support, we would like to make processes more efficient, uh, so define those processes, uh, define maybe some metrics to be tracked uh, to understand where we stand today and where we want to get with the, also the uh, adoption of uh, artificial intelligence and then the second step uh, is also to to think about the the, the data so where do we have uh, uh, this uh, this data where where can we collect data of, of good quality that can be used to uh, to train the, the the artificial intelligence models okay and i think I think also, you know, you, you can see, you can, well, I as a non-AI expert, I should preface by saying, could see AI being used in like quality systems management, because you imagine you're collecting all that data, you're learning from your experience, you're seeing where things are going right, where things are going wrong. So I could imagine it being used there, but also things like with post-market surveillance. I mean, we, we see this already, um, you know, AI being used in post-market surveillance. But, um, you know, one of the things I hear from from manufacturers is this, desire to have unified data sets that can be used across different parts of the organization. So you've you've got your things like maybe your post-market surveillance and vigilance data sets, perhaps you've got your CAPA data sets, etc. And it's one unified pool, but used by different parts of the organization differently depending on what their needs are. So those are those are a couple of things that immediately come to me as again, as I say, definitely as a non-AI expert. Very <laughs> good. Um, Okay, so then um, once once we're thinking about the implementation stage, like at um, a manufacturer organization, what are some of the challenges going to be that they'll encounter like along this journey? Yeah, Alaric, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 we've talked about it. I mean, the quality of data is key. I think fundamentally, a lot of organizations around life sciences have come today by mergers and acquisitions. They've been putting data together. And so that data is really complicated. And so I think one of the real challenges up front is the data management element, cleaning the data set um, and understanding it. But even assuming you've got a great data set, 
then the expertise um, to actually use that data set, you know, AI, ML resources, scarce supply, and also it's trying to work out the scale, right? You know, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of experimentation um, at companies across life sciences where they've kind of proved MVP that they can do something, but they found it very difficult to expand and maintain that capability internally. And so I think that's some of the, the challenges that organizations will face um, along this line. And, and also, you know, maybe part of it is AIML can be seen as the universal panacea as well. And I think one of the things that has to be managed is expectations. Like what, what is the problem we are actually going to solve with this capability? And start, starting like that and then extrapolating from that, proving that case before trying to conquer the world with the capability that you're, you're building. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Francesco, what about um, as you've been working on developing products, what are some of the real world challenges that you've encountered? So I totally agree with uh, all, all what uh, Alaric already said. I think also here yeah, the challenges are quite trans transversal over all uh, industry sectors. So th those are very general challenges like the uh, lack of data. Maybe another important thing to take into account is uh, when, when companies want to internalize this type of solution and build internally AI solutions is the, the, the difficulty in building an AI uh, in, in internal team. Like uh, also this is due very simply to talent shortage. So there is a lot of demand at the moment and it's very difficult to get uh, uh, very uh, quality personnel in there. Um, there is also a problem with, with investments needed. So not only to, to hire obviously these uh, this, uh, people, but also in terms infrastructure for instance setting up the computation infrastructure in terms of the tools uh, so all of these things are, are completely new for some companies that are not uh, uh, tech companies but they still want uh, they still are, are, are showing interest in adopting AI solution and another maybe important important factor I totally agree with Ari, Alaric it's very important to start from the problem uh, not the solution so first uh, start framing the problem in a way and the internal processes um, uh, to understand where we can uh, uh, we can actually use AI to make things more efficient, start collecting the data in this way. Uh, but also, uh, I think start understanding how the AI solutions can integrate with the internal already existing uh, processes, which can be uh, human-based, let's call them uh, processes. But also, how the AI solutions integrate with the uh, the other digital solution that the, 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 the organization is using, so all the legacy systems. So all these type of questions, it's, it's uh, very important to uh, try to find some answers uh, at the beginning of the, of the journey where we start figuring out how uh, to use AI within an organization. So I would say those are the, the, yeah, some of the real world challenges that we have been encountering uh, with other companies, with other organizations in several industry sectors. Okay, very helpful. Um, so we're kind of talking about challenges that manufacturers are facing with adoption. We actually got a question um, from a manufacturer um, about how we might be able to help them from a positioning side. So like think of this slightly in reverse where they're designing a product that's using AI, maybe it's diagnostics, we don't have um, the full details here, um, but it's asking like, what advice would you give them uh, for how to best approach regulators with a new AI-based medical device. Um, and a, a follow-on question to that, which is very interesting as well, is do regulators have the necessary expertise, like from a review perspective? 
whoever well, wants to start with that one. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Yeah, no, I think I think from uh, you know a, an expertise perspective, and I've been in contact with um, notified bodies that are setting up as um, as as software AI um, notified bodies specifically, and the levels of expertise are incredibly high. And I think that's been at least you know in the EU, and I would imagine it has to be similar in in the US as well. Um, and that's probably driven by the commission that has set those competency requirements very, very high. So these are people who do have significant coding experience as well as regulatory experience and device experience. And I think, you know, but keep taking in point, this is very new. So it's it's this sort of like analogous to the situation of how do you find IVD regulatory experts? There are people there who've got the technology and regulatory expertise, but it is new and we're all learning at the, at the same time. Um, in terms of positioning, I think obviously validation is going to be critical. Like how have you validated it and how have you demonstrated that it's going to consistently perform as, as intended, particularly as it's adapting potentially over time, it's adapting as it gets more inputs. And then obviously then feeding into that risk management is going to be a critical aspect of that. So how have you both validated your device? What is the intended purpose? How have you validated the risks and how do you demonstrate that overall benefit risk conclusion for that device? Wallison, do you have anything to add on like how you might recommend they go about this validation piece? Well, that's a that's a very very tricky question. I think yeah. uh, you know I, I would start by really defining I would say uh, you know exactly the problem that we're trying to solve and the the right metrics that we want to use actually to to make sure that we are you know solving that problem and the you know. Once we have defined those, like the problem and the metrics that you want to assess, I think we, you know, we we need from like I would say, this is more like a technical perspective. Make sure that you know while using those AI and while training those AIs and like monitoring how it performs, to make sure that it is matching the metrics expectation that you're trying to to you know to, to build. Uh, you know, let's say you're building a system that wants to do diagnostics. Uh, then obviously you might want to minimize, I don't know, the false negatives, like the you know the the cases in which it, it misses a cancer. So in that case, you need to define this metric, you know, upfront and make sure while training the eye and when evaluating the eye that it is actually respecting the the requirements of the metric that you are setting up. So really, it's a it's a process that should start that should that should start at the very beginning, even before the project starts, and that it's kind of monitored all the way through. When building the AI, designing the, uh, the the machine learning algorithm, training it, and finally validating it. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, so switching gears a little bit to talking about data sets, uh, a little bit more technical. Um, you know, obviously this requires like high maintainability of the AIML data sets. And so if manufacturers are leveraging maybe consultants or external IT groups to help them get started in this area. How can they work to ensure that these models are maintainable? All right. So indeed, that's a also something not trivial. I think there is uh, there is something that should you know uh, should be set up even you know before you know a consultancy project starts is to already think about what will be how will happen the next steps. So once the project is delivered. What would be next? I think you know. Often we think that okay, the project is finished, uh, the consultant has done the work, and okay, I can start using it. 
but actually there is quite a bit of step that happens from the moment where the project is finished to the moment where you're actually using it in production. There is a huge world of things which I think are often uh, forgotten. And so what I would recommend is like already plan in advance for kind of some heavy documentation like to really finalize the project as well as some I would say plan moment for transfer knowledge. You know, especially if you want to start adopting it, you need to be able to actually understand what the consultant has done to internalize it. So this knowledge transfer needs to be accounted as well in the project, as well as any potential support, you know, after the project itself. Like once you have internalized the work, you need to be able to, to rely on the consultants to still provide support, you know, while you're trying to, to, to actually implement that. And uh, so I would say this is kind of the really post steps after the product is finished. And then if you really want to bring something to production and not just like keep it into the prototype mode, I think there is a, a, an effort to do internally in terms of, you know, prototyzing it. And prototyzing it means in this case, we're talking about machine learning models and machine learning models essentially rely on data. And, uh, and so you need to be able to centralize your data as has been said in the, in the past data is absolutely crucial and so we need to be able to have a proper data strategy management in the company to be able to to, to really prioritize those machines that will be using those data and then i would also recommend also automatizing as much as possible of the workflow so that you know we remove all these issues that we face like even like startups specializing in ai might face this is like really maintaining something in production. Today, like I think a lot of the work is done offline and you have data stored there, code stored there, it's a complete mess. And so automatizing, putting as much as possible into production and automatizing as much as possible is what I think can facilitate the, the, the maintenance of those models. So definitely data strategy in place and the model management in place to be able to maintain everything. And Celeste, if I could amplify what Wallace had said there, I, mean, I, I think, yeah, not underestimating the commitment that needs to happen, not just in the first six months, but the next 12 months, 24 months and 36 months, and being very strategic about it, because fundamentally, you know, if I think of it purely from a financial point, if you if you don't back bake that into the plan, you, you might get short term rewards but you're, you will suffer over time. You won't really get the, the benefits you have. So it's, it's been very strategic as you look at your problem statements and understanding what investment you're gonna need. And, and also the strategic decision, like is AI ML a core competency that your organization wants to maintain? Or is it something you want to partner with? And it, it's that sort of um, thought process that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, one of the questions shifting gears a little bit again, is you know this concept of ai taking over roles um so i and you know i see you all smile when i ask this because you've heard it before right and it's a concern um what are your thoughts about this i mean maybe everyone can chime in here amy we'll start with you yeah it's it's a very interesting i think you know sort of philosophical question um because if ai gets to that stage where it is overtaking humans entirely that you don't need that sort of human input then potentially any job could be overtaken but i don't i don't we're not there yet we're not at that stage um you know i think the, the way that we're seeing it at the moment is it's helping it's facilitating that process it's helping humans be more effective but that kind of nuance and decision making and experience 
um, is still required as part of the loop. I mean, I, I do have to say though, when I heard that uh, Ch chat GPT, um, they, they were speculating that it was becoming sentient and it's recently learned how to lie. I thought, oh gosh, how much further is it before they're, they're able to take the place of humans? But yeah, it, it, it's, it's an interesting question, but uh, yeah, I, 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 would, I would defer to the experts on that question. And, and Celeste, I, I've, I've certainly seen where jobs have pivoted. Um, and so rather than doing more kind of mundane tasks, in, in life science, sitting around pharmacovigilance, the team has been repurposed looking at the science, so improving science. So the team's been looking at the, the value add activity as opposed to the stuff that we historically had to do. It's important, but now they can look at patterns, et cetera. So I, I, I think there's always concern with any technology, honestly, as soon as any technology comes out, does this new job. But I think to me, it's more pivoting on what the people do today and what can be done in the future, because the benefits of this capability, I and mean, I think looking at um, you know what Bill Gates said earlier on the week, the idea that you know just uh, the expandability of being able to diagnose patients in, in countries or regions where there aren't act, act, um, access to physicians just makes such a big difference, and I think that that's critical. Absolutely, Francesco. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was going to to also complement some some things i i think i definitely agree about the pivoting aspect you know if we uh just look at like for instance past revolution like on technology uh you know uh computers like when they started like to to arrive you know there are some jobs that you know that kind of started pivoting a bit you know like you can think about you know the first computer like that allowed you to type and write tasks then you know uh you didn't need anymore this typewriter guy that would, would, would be typing things and but that, he didn't lose his job he just stopped doing that and started using this new computer so his job piloted a bit to something which takes less time and so in the end he became more productive and i i that's i, I think that that's how I, I see ai because uh i i feel like you know it will enhance people and and maybe tasks which today are taking out of time even for me or, or whoever might be taking less time tomorrow and then maybe i will have more time to be more productive like you know to develop more things or to just think about you know in my case just think about like architectural design and spend less time coding so there are many things which i think could be enhanced um and uh and in the end augment uh, productivity and and if really ai became so strong then it can replace everything obviously I think that's also a good thing. <laughs> it means that I can I can stop working. Everybody can stop working, and world will start it will run by itself, and we'll get their, our food every month. So I think it's not a a bad a bad future neither. <laughs> or maybe I'm just optimistic. But uh, yeah, I I think is I, I see it from a very good eye. I would say. Absolutely, um, and even like uh, for R2M Plus with Kyoto compliance, that's definitely. Uh, what we've seen as well with the elevation of work, Alaric, as you're talking about, and the ability to focus on the regulatory strategy and the scientific um, body of knowledge and um, that element of the clinical literature review where uh, some of the um, more routine tasks have been um, simplified or, or more streamlined with AI and ML then we're able to shift like Wallace and as you said that pivot is fundamental to the way that we do our work and even um, I'd say enhances job satisfaction in many cases so we're seeing 
um, this benefit, like the pivot, and then also the, the job satisfaction side. Um, so I think we have time for just a few more questions. Um, maybe um, something I think that would be helpful is understanding, this goes back to the data quality question, um, how would you avoid bias when using machine learning in that data? And if we are, if you feel like we already covered that, we can skip either way. All right. Um, so I, I, I think I, will, I, I need to maybe recap again that you know machines, as have been said, they they rely on data, and so they you know you, you provide examples of like the things that you want to automatize, and you you just wait for the eye to learn that by itself. But so whatever is present in the data will end up being present in the model. So in particular, if it is not good quality, as has been said, or if your data contains bias, whatever kind of bias, the eye will learn that bias and it will kind of mm -hmm. propagate that bias further in the future use. And so I, so how to avoid bias, I think definitely working on good quality of data, which, um, you know, is not straightforward. You know, I, I, I let's take for instance, ChatGPT. you know, ChatGPT has, uh, has been trained on the entire internet, like really possibly anything that has been written down has been seen by this chat GPT. And so it means that it has been, it has seen blog posts about people to writing wrong things. It has been reading, I don't know, tweets of people uh, having very political, I would say uh, biased, uh, uh, yeah, uh, just you know ideas to test in everything and so and the fact that this is there is so much data behind it it's made it very difficult like for for, for to, to supervise by a human like what is what is the eye learning and i think that's a very difficult task to do given the amount of data that is being fed by uh, by those artificial intelligence but i think um you know the if there is one way to avoid bias is is to work on the data and we try to you know diversify as much as possible, you know, data sources and like, you know, avoid taking only uh, some source that comes only from, I would say, one group of people and try to re-diversify, I would say, the pool of it that has been fed and to, and to, this is like on the, I would say, on the collection part. Then on the training part, I think there is some work, which I think is, is more on the, the AI scientist part, is how to make sure while training, so while the while the model is trying to learn, how to make sure that we can we can like regularize it and and make sure that it's all those biases which we hope are not the majority of the cases will will not influence the 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 learning process so that it does not end up in the final mm -hmm. model and hopefully not perpetuate the biases. I think actually it's sort of an interesting point because humans aren't free of bias. Um, you know, I remember once when I was uh, reading a clinical evaluation report many years ago and the um, manufacturer had not included uh, a device that I knew got really good outcomes with patients. And so I asked the question, why didn't you include that device? And, and they said quite, um, you know, candidly, oh, well, I thought the purpose was to show that my device was better than every other device out there. If I'd included that one, it wouldn't have been as good. I mean, this, uh, it, was, it was amusing at the time. But argue, I, I would think, um, you know, it may be easier to program an algorithm to avoid sources of bias and to recognize sources of bias than it is to reprogram a human being who's got all kinds of unconscious biases and agendas that are related to, you know, whatever they're trying to demonstrate. 
Very interesting. So it could come quite, down to validation again. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can actually, I, I can bounce off on this because it's, it's really, really interesting. Uh, because it's true that I think, uh, you know, usually machines, you know, they, they do not have feelings. So you, you might expect that they won't be, uh, you know, producing some uh, subjectivity matters. But uh, I think there is also something conceptually missing in, in artificial intelligence is um, is the concept of you know of uh, how to say this is like embedding a social norms somehow you know like we, we as a human I would say like in, in, there are many things which you know we 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 know because it's like the, the world knowledge like we 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 should not you know um, insult somebody uh, for no reason there are many things which you know we we don't do because we're, we're we're kind of subject to, to norms which are influenced by us, whereas AI does not have this kind of thing, and and uh, it makes it difficult, you know, to to, to encode that uh, in, in artificial intelligence. And it's uh, yeah, I think that's that's kind of a big limitation that AI has today. Is like how how should we, you know, encode, you know, everything that you know we as a human have, and uh, which are like social norms, like how to behave, how not to behave. Or like what not to say, all those things like we 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 have it by default, kind of like common sense. And it's, this is very hard to encode into a machine. And um, and uh, yeah, I think it's it's definitely a big challenge for the for the AI. Absolutely. So I think um, one of the messages we want to leave on is understanding the transformative technology and how it can have an impact in every domain of life sciences. How would you recommend um, the listeners that have joined us today to get started. Well, I'm, I'm happy to take a shot at that one first, Les. I mean, I, I think honestly, it's, uh, I mean, there's, it's looking at the problem, right? You know, it's kind of looking at the problem and being realistic about like, you know, this is a key problem for us. Do we have the data available to us? Uh, how do we progress it? I, I think it's, it, I, it go back to what I said earlier, it's not a universal panacea, it's try and be laser focused on, on an area. If you can bring that focus, then you can like look at kind of clarifying the data, partnering appropriately, building the team appropriately, rather than just progressing across multi fronts at once. I think the focus is key and really understanding the problem area specifically. Very helpful. Francesco, do you have anything to add? Absolutely. So. Well, I mean, I, I think also to, to kind of come back to uh, previous topics that were uh, that were uh, brought up to the to the discussion. Also, we have seen uh, we we are seeing over the past years we are seeing today that uh, the industry in general is, is realizing that the value of, that AI and ML can bring is is huge, uh, especially in terms of uh, of uh, for instance time efficiency. So we, we see this uh, the appeal of this topic uh, also in a number of tools that are available to target, for instance, specific needs of the of the medtech industry. However, I mean, th there are some challenges. Uh, uh, first, uh, that needs to be taken into account in the in uh, by the organizations that want to internalize these uh, uh, these these processes. And there are also some limitations that needs to be taken into account, as we were also discussing uh, before. So some limitations that are uh, uh, fundamental and embedded in any artificial intelligence uh, system. What we have seen over the past uh, over the past years, especially in the recent years, is that more and more uh, companies are looking for end-to-end -end applications uh, that can allow on one side to uh, unlock the potential of artificial intelligence, 
for instance, in terms of uh, efficiency gains, and on the other side, to overcome most of the challenges that are typically faced by the individual organizations that want to uh, develop uh, AI solutions uh, from scratch. Uh, so obviously going to an end-to-end -end application and, and trying to, to use it to, um, to, to, to fit into the existing internal processes would allow to not have the, the burden of hiring an internal team and, and uh, sustaining the investment of the infrastructure and the tools, but also of benefiting of data that has already been uh, labeled and uh, collected uh, to build the artificial intelligence that is behind the existing end-to-end uh, -end application. So this is definitely one of the uh, ways uh, that we have seen uh, over the past years becoming uh, uh, more and more uh, frequent and relevant. Very helpful, thank you. Well, thank you everyone for joining this great discussion today. I definitely learned a lot and enjoyed our conversation and the questions from the audience. Uh, please, if you have follow-up questions, do reach out. And Steve, back to you. Thanks, Celeste. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. You'll be receive a follow-up email with a link to the recording and summary of questions that we covered by early next week. Uh, we'll also be uploading this episode to our Device Advice podcast, so we encourage you to subscribe to that on your podcast platform of choice if you haven't already. As far as what's next, uh, we aren't quite ready to announce next month's Archeon Post live show, but I can say it's going to be on Thursday, April 27th. Uh, I'd also like to share that we made some major updates to our events page at archeonplus.com with many of the places that we'll be in 2023. Um, so if you'd like to know where we'll be speaking, exhibiting, and or attending, uh, please check that out. Um, we're also sharing where we are in the world on the Archeon Plus LinkedIn page. So, and we share much of the content that's in our archeonplus.com knowledge center there, along with career opportunities, occasional commentary on industry news, and more. Uh, we're always excited about our relatively new MedTech Voices mini video series. Uh, for example, we just posted one of the first of two episodes about traversing the path from CER to PMCF. So again, uh, the point with all that was please give us a follow on LinkedIn so that's it for today's show. Thank you for being here, and we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.